Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to worship you in the word. We ask that you guide and lead us and that we would see what you would have us to see through this chapter that we're going to look at in your son's name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 33. We're getting into the blessings of the tribes. And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord come came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto, the, unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. And he came with ten thousands of saints in his right hand, went a fiery law for them. Yea, he loved his people. All his saints are in your hand. And they sat down at his feet. Even every one shall receive of your word. Moses commanded us a law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king of Jeshurun when the heads of the people and the tribes of Israel were gathered together. So we're going to start here. This is the introduction into the blessing. And it says, Moses, the man of God. I like that description, the man of God. He was, he was known by God. And it says in another place that Moses was the prophet that God spoke with face to face. He was, you know... And you remember that Moses at one point said, God, I want to see your face. And God said, no man can see my face and live, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rocks and you can see my back parts. And he, he put his hand on him in the cleft of the rock and he was able to see something. What it was he saw, we don't know exactly, but he saw something that was considered God's back parts, you know, not, his, not his full glory. But Moses had a different relationship with God than any of the other individuals in the scriptures other than other than somebody like Adam and Eve that talked with them every in the cool of every evening and before the flood there were those who seemed to talk with God on a on an audible basis but Moses talks to God and very personally and we've talked about this place where he and he and God seem to have this little game going on they're your people no they're your people and there, there was almost this playfulness that you know you could see the friendship that had developed between them and the description of him, the man of God. And it says, The Lord from Sinai rose up from Seir unto them and shined forth from Mount Paran. And he came with ten thousands of saints from, from his right hand and went a fiery law for them. And just the picture, ten thousands of saints. We're probably referring to angels at this point. But there's another scripture that we could look at where he says he was going to return with ten thousands of his saints, which is this church. And we think about this, 10,000 used to be the number you would say if you were talking about a big number. Uh, it's not so long ago that 10,000 was considered a big number. Even in the colonial days, 10,000 was a big number. Now we talk about millions and trillions. And you know, if we want to talk about big numbers, we talk about those. In their day, it was if you had $10,000 in the bank, you were rich. You know, if you had 10,000 whatever, <laughs> you, you were rich. And... This is why when we were reading the history, when I was reading the history of uh, George Mueller, it says that he was spending 10,000 pounds a month running his orphanages, and he wasn't a rich man. He was very poor, but God was providing him a rich person's income every month to take care of all those orphans. I that was a really good book. It was. But God is able to, and it says, he's coming back with basically a multitude of saints. Are coming to them with a multitude of saints to protect them. And uh, it says that he shines forth, shines forth with the rules and laws of what, he, what he's trying to bring forth. And it says, he, 
Yea, he loved the people. All his saints are in his hand. And they sat down at your feet. Everyone shall receive your words. He loved his people. I love the, when the picture of God loving human beings. For one thing, if you're thinking about when the way God would be, should be looking at us, there should be no reason for him and is no reason for him to love us. We're, we're wicked, we're sinners, we're born sinners, we deserve punishment from the moment we're born, and yet God says he loves us. And I don't know if that amazes you as much as it does me, but it really does amaze me that God loves mankind. Not, and not just loving those that are his, he loves all of mankind. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And this is just an amazing thought. God loves us so much that he's willing to do whatever it takes to, to buy us back. Shall not perish. Yeah, just because he loves us does not mean we're going to go to heaven, does not mean we're going to be forgiven without belief in Jesus. And this is where the world keeps coming back at you. Well, God is a God of love. He'll not send anybody to hell. No, God will, is a God of justice and mercy. And if you don't accept his forgiveness, you will go to hell because that's your choice. And we see here that God loves the people that are at his hand and they sat at his feet. Every one of them shall receive his word. His saints, his children, sit at his feet and receive his word. This is what is so important about, number one, reading the Bible and letting the Holy Spirit guide and lead us. Number two, being under a pastor teacher to be taught and understand. And then number three, being part of a body of Christ where others can help teach, his, teach each other. It's a, it's a very important thing. God says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves and so much more as you see the day approaching. We need each other in the body of Christ to be able to be strong in God. All these people who want to try to be Lone Ranger Christians never make it. I don't see anything out of these people that want to be Lone Rangers. I can do this on my own. I don't need to go to church. I don't need a pastor. I don't need anything. All I need is my Bible and the Holy Spirit. And on one side, that is, there is truth in that. But on the other side, God tells us we need each other. Because when we fall, we need somebody that's there to say, hey, I'm going to help you stand. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to, I'm going to pick you up and, and strengthen you. I'm going to bring you back to where you need to be standing. And this is why we need the body of Christ. And I've heard of some people go, well, I don't need the body of Christ. I've just... They picked on me, they beat me up, and I feel so bruised. But I mean, I'm sorry that, yes, sometimes that happens in the body of the Christ. You're going to run, against, run up against some people that are just miserable members of the body. But when we meet those type of people, it's also an opportunity for us to show Christ's love toward them and say, I'm going to, I'm going to love this person in spite of the fact that they don't deserve to be loved. And maybe they can be drawn into correct fellowship with God. Because one thing about the body of Christ, you're going to have all kinds of people. You're going to have people that you like, people you don't like. And the people you don't like, there may not be any reason why you don't like them. You know, the, no valid reason for not liking them. You just don't like them. Other people may think they're the greatest person in the church. You know, but we need to keep in mind we're to love one another as Christ loves the church. <laughs> and uh, we say, okay, God, I'm going to love them. as You give me the strength to love them. 
I may not go sit next to them in church. I may not sit next to them in the fellowship times, but God help me to love them enough to tolerate them at least. And this is something that's important. He says they will sit at his feet and learn, learn, learning from God, learning to walk with God, learning to grow. God spent 40 years with these people getting ready to go into the promised land trying to teach them. And we know how stubborn and, you know, they were. They didn't listen to anything hardly. And yet God's grace says, I'm going to send you into land anyway. I'm going to give you the land I've promised you. Why? Because I promised it to Abraham. Not because you deserve it, but I promised it to Abraham. Why does God give us the blessings? Not because we deserve it, because he promised his son a bride that was going to be perfect and chaste for him. So he takes and he cleanses us and so that he can present us to Jesus as a perfect bride. And we can't understand half of all that goes on. Yeah, amazing, amazing thing to me. And I've already said this many times. It amazes me that God created man, knowing that man was going to fail and knowing that Jesus was going to have to die to win them back. And yet he went ahead and created man. If I had been God, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, uh, at least knowing what I know. You know how, what does he get out of this? He gets a whole bunch of stinking sinners. <laughs> uh, now, obviously, he gets more out of it than, not, than that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. But, you know, from our perspective, he gets a whole bunch of stinking sinners that, that keep making, doing the wrong thing every time we turn around. And he says, I'm going to die for them and, and buy them back and make them, make them perfect and in the righteous of, not righteousness of Christ. So it's an amazing thing. And uh, it says, Moses commanded us a law and the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. And I kind of love this. They put Moses commanded up. When it was really God who provided it, God wrote it down on the, on the commandments. God told Moses what to say at every point. But you can almost see Moses was so close to God that there's this interchanging between them quite frequently. Him and God playing their little game. They're your people. No, they're your people. Uh, God, you know, I'm going to go in and I'm going to talk to you face to face. And I love it. He spends time up on the mountain. He comes back and his face is shining and he has to wear a... a a veil so that people don't aren't afraid of what they see. He goes into the sanctuary and gets refreshed in, in, in front of the face of God and, and stays shining for a period of time. And he comes out and he says, he's teaching the law. He was the king in Jerusalem, which we've talked about as a poetic word for Israel. So when you see that, if you're in the, uh, if you're taking the uh, Psalm class, we've talked about this several times, that that's a poetic word for Israel. And he, he is their king. He is their king, and he will be their king up until they demand a king in the days that, in, in, Saul, in Samuel's day, the last prophet of the people. A couple, three, four hundred years later, they'll say, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. We want to be like the rest of the Rest of the nations, God, we want a king. And Samuel's, God tells Samuel, relax, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. And he gives them a long message about telling them what a king will be like. Just as, just as if you recall, Moses did a few chapters back, which for us a couple months ago. <laughs> but Moses told them, when you ask for a king, this is what a king will do. And he gives them all the same story, same information that Samuel was given to tell the people when they asked for a king. 
He's going to take the best of the land. He's going to take the best people into his service. He's going to take the, a tenth of everything that you own will be belong to the king. Told the king to write a book of the law for their own copy and, and, to, and to not collect wives and not collect horses, which we see somebody like Samuel do violate all of those. And, but God says, this is what's going to happen, and it did happen. And, uh, but it was already prophesied that it would happen. You were going to ask for a king, and this is what a king's going to be like. And uh, here it says, you know, Moses is reminding him, God is your king, and he's the head of your people and the tribes that are gathered together. God is your leader. Now, the people did not like having a God for a leader because what happens when you have a God for a leader? There's no physical leader for you to follow. And that's why God, all through the book of Judges, kept raising up leaders when the people would go into sin. God would raise up leaders to focus them back on him. And eventually they're going, okay, we've had enough of this. We want to be, we want to be like everybody else. The worst thing we can do as followers of God is ask, tell God we want to be like everybody else. We want to be like the world, God. And you know what? God is so gentle, a lot of times he'll let us learn the hard way that we don't want to be like the rest of the world. But how many times do we look around and say, God, uh, I'm just tired of being the goody two-shoes and not, not doing what the world does. And we might not say it quite that strongly, but isn't that what happens when we get tempted into a sin? Everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it, God. Yeah. Yeah. And as my dad used to say, if everybody jumped off the cliff, would you jump off the cliff? <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, this is usually what happens. God, uh, how can this be wrong? Everybody I know is doing it. Well, if that's the case, change your friends. Get to know some people that are following God. Uh, Satan is good with this statement of everybody's doing it. For number one, everybody is not doing, there's never a time that everybody is doing wrong. Uh, well, Hensel, it goes a lot further back than that. It's still going on today. It's what Satan uses. You know, it is what he uses to, make, to tempt us. Everybody's doing it. We want to be like everybody else. All right, he starts the blessings now. And this is the blessing of Judah. He said, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him unto his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and be you a help to him from his enemies. Oh, did I miss it? All right, let's start with, let's start with Reuben. <laughs> let Reuben live and, and not die, and let not his men be few. Reuben gets a very short blessing. <laughs> God, don't let, it, don't let him be wiped out. Huh? Well, all, all 12 of these guys are going to be brothers of, Joseph, uh, brothers of Joseph or sons of Jacob, whichever way you want to look at it, the 12 tribes of Israel. So Reuben's blessing is a real simple let him live and not, not be wiped out. Uh, as far as we know, none of the tribes have ever been wiped out. A couple of times they've been coming close. Benjamin was almost wiped out in one particular incident. And we see other times, but he says, don't let them wipe, be wiped out. Let them live. Very, very short blessing for poor Reuben. And go, now we'll go to the blessing on Judah. He said, hear, Lord, the voice of Judah and bring him to his people let his hands be sufficient for him and for you and you be his help from his enemies. Judah gets a blessing and who's Judah? When you go back to Jacob's blessing at the end of Genesis, 
Jacob says, let the scepter never leave his hand. He was already known that he was going to be the king. He was going to be a king. He was going to be the ruler of his people. And Judah is the tribe that is the line that David comes from, is the line that Jesus comes from. So he will be the king. And it says, let him be sufficient. Let his people come to him. He's, a, he's going to be the leader. He's going to be somebody that leads. Let him come to them. And, and you keep in God, you help him. You help him. And this is such a wonderful thing. I love this, that God helps. God helps us. Not those who can help themselves. Those who can't help themselves is who God helps. And he goes, you're all headed for hell, and I'm here to help you. You're all here looking to do wrong, and I'm here to give you the strength to do right. You're all here to do wrong, and I'm here to give you the strength and crucify your flesh and let you live. And he says, God helps, will help Judah. Now Levi gets a, several verses as a blessing. And Levi, he said, let your Thummim and your Urim be with the Holy One, whom you have did prove at Massah, and with whom you did strive at the waters of Meribah, who said unto his father and his mother, I have not seen him, neither did he acknowledge his brethren, nor knew his own children, for they were, have observed your word and kept your covenant. He shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and the whole burnt sacrifice upon your altar. Bless Lord his substance and accept the work of his hand. Smite through the loins of them that rise up against him and them that hate him that they rise not up again. All right, remember, this is Levi. Who are Levi? They're the clan that is going to serve in the temple or the tabernacle at this particular time. God chose Levi to be his instead of the firstborn of all the people. If you remember back in the beginning of, of Numbers, he says, I'm taking Levi, they're mine. Instead of taking the firstborn of all your children, I will take the tribe of Levi. And there wasn't enough Levites to make up for the number of people that were supposed to be in service, so God took money from them to make up the difference. He redeemed the, the firstborn. So here's the blessing on the tribe that follow, that God says, this is mine. They don't get an inheritance, remember. Levi is not going to get an inheritance in the land. They're going to get cities of refuge and, and cities that, that belong to the priests scattered all across Israel. But they do not get any land. And, it's, and in, remember that Moses is a Levite and Aaron is a Levite. And the tribe of Aaron, all the priests come from. So all priests are going to be Levites, but not all Levites are priests. You want to keep that in, mem in remembrance. If they're not of the tribe of Aaron, they cannot be a priest, even though they work in the temple as a Levite. And mostly what the Levites did during this period of time, they took down the tabernacle, carried it. When they got to where they were going, they put it back up. And that was their main job. And when they got ready to move, they took down the temple, packed it up, uh, the tabernacle, packed it up, when they got to where they were going, they put the tabernacle back up. So they're like carnies. Kind of, roadies, uh Their job was literally just to carry it. Uh, one, tri one particular group of the Levites was responsible for all the instruments of, the, of worship. They carried the mercy seat and the showbread, the altar of showbread, and they carried them on the poles. Another tribe was responsible for carrying all the wood that was involved in setting up the tabernacle. Huh? No. 
nope, one of the Levites. one of the Levites. Now Aaron's Aaron's sons had to go in and cover everything before, before the Levites could come in because they could not even see the stuff and they would carry it on the huh? Aaron's sons are the priests. The Levites just served in the tabernacle, huh? They were workers. That's, later on, they're going to become the singers and the, and the people that clean the temple and all of that other stuff that goes on uh, because they are separated. Let the Thuman and the Urim be with your Holy One. Does anybody remember what the Thuman and the Urim is? Lynn? Some kind of stone, some kind of something that they use to say this is God's will. Literally, it means lights. So we don't know whether it was some kind of stone that when the light shone through, made some patterns. Uh, we don't know if it was some kind of form of, of, of dice or something. We don't know. All we know is that they used it to, de to divine God's will. It's believed that it was some kind of gem and it was kept in the pockets of the high priest garment. We don't know much about it. We really don't. We, they speculate a lot of things about it. It is believed that one was white and one was dark and if they fell certain ways, I mean, we don't really know anything about it. All we know is they consulted them for decisions. How they did it, we don't know. Put them in a bag and you pulled out the dark one, it was no, and the light one, it was yes. We don't, we don't know if they had sides. We don't know if the light shone through them and created patterns. We don't know if it's like the Orients where they shake out the sticks and the you know, words are on the sticks. You know, we don't know what it was that God used. All we know is the high priest used them to determine yes or no on decisions that were brought to him. And so it's very likely that it might have just been a light and dark stone that were put into a bag that were drawn out, out of the bag. Whether it had sides or something, we don't really know much. About. We know nothing about it other than it was used to make decisions. So he says... Let your Thuman and your Urim be with the Holy One. And it says, you did prove me at Massah, and you did, not, and you did strive at the waters of Meribah. So you remember that these were early strivings with God. Meribah. Who remembers what Meribah happened? What happened at Meribah? That was the unsweet water shortly after they crossed the, the Red Sea. And they grumbled to God, we're thirsty, and all we have is this terrible bitter water and they and he cast the stick into it which we've talked about representing the cross and it became sweet water and they were able to drink and it seems like everybody at that first testing was grumbling okay and we see this over and over they leave egypt they start grumbling even before they get to the red sea they get to the red sea and you know they're over and over again they tell moses was there not enough graves in egypt that you took us out here so they will die in the wilderness and God says, you know, watch the deliverance. He takes them across the Red Sea. They complain about no water. They get to Meribah and they complain that the water, the water they found doesn't taste good. And God still gives them grace. And it says, you, even the Levites, were part of that group. And then they says, who said to his father and to his mother, I have not seen him, neither did he acknowledge his brethren, nor knew he his own children, for they had observed thy word and, thy, and kept your covenant. These two phrases go back to two events. One of them is in Exodus 32, verses 26 and 27. This is when Moses comes down off the Mount Sinai the first time after 40 days, 
and the people are riotously worshiping the golden calf, running around in an orgy, and Moses throws down the, the Ten Commandments, breaks the Ten Commandments, chides Aaron, because Aaron, uh, Aaron was the one who cast this, the, the golden calf. And remember, I love, I love Aaron's excuse. You know, I threw the gold in the fire, and out came this, this, this calf. Like, it was a miracle, Moses. I just threw gold in the fire, and, and this calf jumped out of the fire. Dad. Yeah. His father, right? No, Moses is his brother. Brother. Oh, yeah. sorry, brother. I... Yeah. I didn't do anything. I just threw the, I threw the gold in, and out came this calf. Then Moses calls out, who is on the Lord's side? And the tribe of Levi comes running up to Moses he tells them to gird their swords on and they go in and they kill 10,000 people that day. And then God stops them and says, enough have died for this, for this sin. But Aaron's, uh, the Levites joined Moses in the disciplining of the people, which is talking here about rejecting their family. You know, they, because they were going to kill brothers and sisters that were their family members, cousins. And then the other statement on this comes from Deuteronomy 13, where Aaron was told, and the rest of the priest, when a mother, father, son, daughter dies, you do not mourn for your own family because you represent God and, and you cannot mourn in front of the people because you represent God. And this was what Aaron was told. Remember when they built the, the tabernacle and they were getting ready to worship and Adab and Abihu went out and they lit fire to a censer and they did everything wrong and God burnt them. You know, they got, you know, it's one, one, one pastor that I listened to, they got fired, <laughs> literally. Uh, and Aaron was told, you do not mourn for your, your sons. They were rebellious and you represent me and you cannot be mourning because they were doing evil. And it's a pretty harsh thing that the, the priests could not mourn in their position as a priest. They could mourn in their homes. They could mourn outside. But in Aaron's case, especially on that first one, he was not allowed to mourn at all because he could not say God would put, you know, would care for sinners being so judged. They couldn't mourn in public because, for their family because, because it was a they represented God in, in the public. Because he did not participate in it. Huh? Oh, you mean back in the grace? Grace? It's only got. It's all grace. It's all grace. When, when God doesn't kill somebody for doing what they should have died for, it's grace. Well, the word grace shows up with uh, Noah. Grace shows up when he comes, when God comes to Adam and Eve and says, "What have you done?" And he and he kills the, kills the first uh, animal so that they could be clothed with skins and, and covered. And then with Cain, when Cain should have been should have been directly killed, and God gave him grace to be able to live out the rest of his life. Grace is always part of who God is, because He knew that Jesus was going to pay the debt. So grace has always been part of who God is. This is why when you talk to people who don't understand grace, they really know nothing or understand anything about the Bible because the Bible's got grace all the way through it. We have Abraham stopping in Haran instead of obeying God. God could have just said, okay, I'm done with you, next. 
You know, you didn't, you didn't obey me. You, you stopped for 20 years in Haran. He, he had enough grace over, over, over Lot to deliver him from Sodom. He had enough grace over Jacob, the trickster and, and cheater that he was, to, to make him the father of the, of the nations and, and be able to save them. We, we see God's grace all through the scriptures. And so grace is important. And here is the same picture, grace. When they come through the camp to kill, the, kill these people, and God says, okay, 10,000 is enough. You've done it. You, you, you've, you've acted in, for my honor. 10,000 is enough. Not even a tithe of the people died. Okay, So a very small amount of people died so that God would say, okay, my, my justice and holiness has been satisfied. God will bring judgment, but he tempers all of his judgment with grace. And he keeps doing this over and over again. And when he brings rain upon the world in Noah's day, he has grace on Noah and keeps, the family, keeps Noah's family. On pouring out his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and he takes, he takes Lot and his wife and his daughters out in grace. When it comes to our salvation, he shows us grace by sending Jesus Christ to die for our sins. Grace is such a wonderful thing. It's everything about the Bible is about grace. Even when people look at it and all they see in the Old Testament is law, they're not looking close enough. Because you, if you want to see law, you can see law in the New Testament too. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. They tried to make the church think that they gave all their gift and God struck them dead. Uh, other events where God punishes people for their disobedience. So law is always in existence because of God's righteousness and his holiness, but it's also his grace is overarching all of that because he loves us and he created us so that he could have a relationship with us. Well, you could have one. Well, you, it would be hard to have true grace. You, would have, you couldn't have grace without law because there would have to be something to have grace from. Law could exist without, without grace. It wouldn't be a world you'd want to live in, but it could exist. Uh, it would be hell. It really would be hell if you had nothing but law with no grace. Because any, any sin would have been condemned to instant death. So you can have law without grace. You can't have grace without law because there's nothing. You've got to have something to be, have grace from. But he says, you stood up for me. You, and he says, they shall teach Jacob my judgments and Israel my law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings upon your altars. The priests, the Levites, were to be the teachers of the people. Now, they didn't always do that. Many times they didn't do it very well at all. When the, when the people totally pulled away from God, there were times that they became just like everybody else. He says, they're going to be my teachers. They put incense before me. The, the Levites would go in and they would put incense on the incense altar in the holy place. And the priest would get would put the incense, and the incense represent the prayers of the people. And it says they put the burnt offerings. The Levites would spend time killing, helping the priest with the killing of the animals because there were only so many priests, especially at this day and age where there's only uh, Aaron and two of his sons and whatever sons they have in 40 years. There's not a whole lot of priests. And you've got millions of people making offerings. So there were times that the Levites had to offer help make the offerings. In Solomon's day, when they had a huge Passover celebration at the, creation, at the opening of the temple, there were so many people that they said the priest and the Levites 
and others <laughs> helped to kill the animals because there were just too many of them. In uh, uh, Josiah's day, when he had a had the first Passover in many many years, they just they couldn't all, you know, kill all the Passover lambs fast enough, so they had the Levites helping to prepare these animals for execution and sacrifice. So the Levites have had many opportunities to serve God in many ways. And it says, Bless, Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. So God, he says, he puts a blessing on the, on the Levites. God bless them. Give them great substance. And this is quite a prayer when, remember, they have no inheritance in the land. They're going to be given cities and the equivalent of about five miles around the city for, for land to raise their crops and, and flocks in. That's all that they get. I think it's 50 cities and, and that little strips of land for them to raise. And, God, and, Mo, and the blessing that Moses says is bless their substance. Now they do get the tithes from the people. Because remember back when we talked about the tithes. All the tithes went to the Levites. The Levites would tithe to the priests out of, their, out of the money they got. And the priest would tithe to the high priest. And I guess the high priest you know, made, a, made an offering to God. It doesn't really have an in, instruction there. But all the tithes belong to the Levites. And then they tithe to the priest and, and so on. So we see their income directly related to how righteous the people were. When the people were following God and doing what they were supposed to and giving the tithes and the first fruits of their increase and all of that, they were well off. When people forgot about the temple of God and forgot about sacrifices, which happened many times in their history, what happened to the Levites? Basically, they left the tabernacle. They went home and started being farmers and, and herdsmen because they needed to eat. And they're going, if the people aren't coming to support us, we're going to go take care of ourselves. And then, there was no, and then the snowball effect of that was there's nobody to teach, them, teach the word of God to the people, no one to offer the sacrifices because they had abandoned their post because the people had abandoned them. And this is something that's very critical for us to keep in mind. Paul said that the, work, the workman is worthy of his hire, and he's talking about pastors being worthy of the pay that they get because they're of their service to God. In this day, it was the Levites. They were worthy of their hire. God said that the, the, the tithe belongs to them. and Because God didn't need money. God still doesn't need money. He, he does not need our tithes and offerings. He asks us to do it only to be true to honoring him. And then he uses that tithe and offerings. But, you know, he can get money any way he wants. He can get to the lost world to give him money. He, can, he could create the money. He could do whatever he wants and, and be able to take care of it. In uh, the New Testament, the people came to Peter and says, do, does your master pay the temple tax? And he goes, oh, yeah, sure he does. And then Jesus says, you know, well, I really shouldn't be, but just so that you and I can stay out of trouble with the people, go down and, and the first fish you catch in the water, drop your line, and the first fish you catch, take the, take the four drachmas out of it and pay yours, your tax and my tax. Yeah. Now, did, did that fish swallow something? Did God put a drac you know, the drachmas in the mouth of the fish? I don't know. It doesn't really matter, but the fact was God said that it would be there. He can make it happen miraculously. He can make it happen through the people. It really doesn't matter. God will make take care of him and his church. And we, he, most of it is just for us. We give to him to show that we love him enough to trust him to be our God and our provider. And then he says, interestingly, smite through the loins of them that rise up against him and them that hate him that they rise not again. 
smite up the loins. So this has a two-point thought. One is literally the reproductive capacity of those that are attacking him. And the other one is just the painful, painful attack that they, they don't get back up for him. So this is a very graphic description of take care of God take care of their enemies and make sure that they are not a problem in the future. So this is, this is the Levites. And then he says, and of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, and the Lord shall cover him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. Now this is kind of an interesting statement. He shall dwell between his shoulders. The land that Benjamin gets is right in the center of Israel. It borders at Jerusalem, and it's got both Mount Hermon and Mount uh, Ebal on the, I think it's Ebal, on the other side, which is the two mountains of blessing and judgment that the people are, are to worship on. And so he says, Benjamin shall dwell in safety. Benjamin was the youngest child of Jacob. And he says, I'm just going to put him in safety. Benjamin is also the tribe that Saul, King Saul comes from. Okay, he's, he's the tribe that the first king of Israel is going to come off and also the rejected king of Israel. He's also the only tribe that stays with Judah when the two kingdoms split. Remember after Solomon uh, is dead and Rehoboam, his son, takes over and the people come to Rehoboam and they say, uh, your father taxed us pretty heavily and he was pretty harsh on us. You know, we would just like you to cut our taxes back a little bit. And the old men, the old advisors, Solomon's advisors told Rehoboam, that'd be a really good idea. It would be really good if you cut back their taxes and, and won their heart. Rehoboam went to his, to his friends, his young friends, and they go, here's what you tell the people. You tell them, you think my father was hard on you? You're going to wish that my father was still around when I get done with you. You know, you're, you're, my father's thumb was, was, will be as my, as my waist around you. And, he, and the people and the nation split. And the only two tribes that stayed with Rehoboam were Judah, his own tribe, and Benjamin. And the other ten tribes departed and became the, uh, the northern kingdom. It's oftentimes known as Samaria. All right. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed of the Lord in be his land for the precious things of, heavy, of heaven, for the dew and for the deep that crouches beneath, and for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun, and for the precious things put forth by the moon, and for the chief things in ancient mountains, for the precious things of the lasting hills, for the precious things of the earth, and the fullness and, the, and of the goodwill of him that dwells in the bush. Let the blessings come upon the head of Joseph, and upon the top of his head that was separated from his brethren. His glory is like the firsting of the bullock, and his horns like the horns of the unicorn. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth, and they are, and they are the ten thousands of Ephraim and are the thousands of Manasseh. So here we have another long blessing. This goes to Joseph. Joseph is considered a great blessing to the people. Remember, it's because of Joseph that they're still alive. The brothers... Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous of his vision, saying, you know, and he was foolish enough to tell, you know, here at the time he was one of the youngest brothers. Benjamin had just been born, and he's telling them, you know what, I saw this dream, and we're in the fields, and our, you know, we're stacking together these haystacks, and your haystacks bow to my haystack. Didn't take the brothers long to realize that he was saying that they were going to bow to him. 
Then he talks about the sun and the moon, and he goes, the sun and the moon, uh, the, the 11 stars bowed to me, and the sun and the moon bowed to me. And this time his father's listening to him, and, and uh, his brothers really get upset. And his father kind of takes him aside, like, uh, kinda, you're, you're kind of losing, losing touch with reality here, son. You, know, you think your mother and I are going to bow down to you as well? And his brothers sell him into slavery. And that's what this verse is talking about. He was separated from his brethren. Separated for 13 years before he's promoted. Then he goes seven years of prosperity after that. So he's at 20 years. And then it's two years into the famine before his brothers come and see him. So he's 22 years separated from his brothers before he finally sees them again. And what do they do the first time they see him? They bow down to him because he's the second ruler of Egypt. And they don't recognize him. Because he's grown up just a little bit from the 17-year-old they sold into slavery. He dresses a little funny as an Egyptian. Wears his hair a little different. Probably wears his beard a little different than they're used to. And it says, Blessed are you for the precious things of heaven and the dew and the deep things crouch beneath. He goes, God is going to bless you. And Joseph gets a double blessing of inheritance in the promised land. Because his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, both are considered tribes of Egypt, uh, of Israel. Why? Because Jacob said, they're my sons. <laughs> when, he, when, he sees Egypt, when he sees Joseph again, if you remember back in, the very, in Genesis, when he gets down to Egypt, he goes, okay, Joseph, these are my sons now. You can have the rest of any other sons you can have are yours, but these two are mine. Interesting world when you're in a patriarchal, patriarchal world and the father says, these are my kids now. Uh, they're replacing you. I'm going to take two kids in your place. And God did that on purpose because God is going to take Levi out of it. So with Jacob taking two sons in Joseph's place, he's got 13 tribes and God takes Levi, so there's back to 12. So Le- Jacob knew what he was doing. Joseph gets a double portion in the land. And he says, you're going to be blessed. You're going to have all these things. He goes, precious fruit shall be born, brought forth from the sun, and precious things shall be put forth by the moon. He says, you're going to be blessed night and day. Night and day, you're going to have blessings. And it says, the chief things of the ancient mountains and the precious things are the, la- are the lasting hills. In other words, both of the hills, the mountains, everything that grows in the ground, is, everything is going to be blessing Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim. And it says, for the precious things of the earth and the fullness thereof and the goodwill of him that dwells in the bush, let the blessings come upon the head of Joseph, upon the top of his head, which was of him that was separated from his brethren. This is quite a blessing that he's putting on him, on Manasseh and Ephraim. Now remember, the half tribe of Manasseh is going to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan, and half the tribe is going to be on the western side, and Ephraim is all on the, on the eastern side. Because remember, we've got Gad, uh, Manasseh, and I don't Ephraim, Ephraim. Sorry, Ephraim's on the outside, uh, out on the west side. And they go. And why did they ask? Go. They go. God, we we like this land on this side. It's good for cattle. And they and Moses said, Okay, you can have it. But when we go into the promised land, all your men of war have to go in with your brothers to fight. If you don't do that, you don't get your land out on this side of the Jordan. Your families can stay here, your cattle can stay here, but your fighting men go into the land 
until the people get their land, get their inheritance. And then he ends with this, that, that they are the 10,000 of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh. And this is kind of an interesting statement because the tribes are pretty equal in size. Uh, Ephraim had some 40,000 people and Manasseh had some 10,000 people, uh, for, uh, 30,000 people. There's only about 10,000 people difference between them. And yet Moses is ascribing them 10,000s and thousands. And could be just poetic language here that he's talking about, but I just find it interesting. You know, that one side gets 10,000s and there's four 10,000s in there and the other one just gets 1,000s and there's 30,000 of them. You could have said your 10,000s and your 10,000s and still gotten away with it. He says, and of Zebulun, he said, rejoice Zebulun in your going out. Now Zebulun gets a real long blessing. <laughs> rejoice in your going out. And the things you do when you go forward rejoice. And Issachar in your tents. Zebulun, when you go out, Issachar is you when you stay. Uh, those poor two tribes don't have a whole lot said about them. Uh, and they're not really famous anywhere else in the, in the scriptures. And, and they just have this little bit said, they shall call their people to the mountain, and there they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, and they shall suck up the abundance of the sea and the treasures hid in the sand. And this is kind of an interesting thing. He goes, you're going to get the treasures of the sea, be fishermen, get, get the bounty of the sea. And I love this one, and the treasures hid in the sand. Now, you think about this, what treasure is hidden in the sand in the Middle East is mostly oil. And they have oil. Israel has a lot of oil. They are self-supporting country in the Middle East. Which is why nothing can really be done to separate them from it. Because every, they're, they're the breadbasket of Europe. They've got their own supply of oil. They've got their own supply of water. They've, I mean, everything about them is kind of like the United States. The United States has everything we need to survive. If every other country wanted to try to shut us off, we have everything we need. Israel is that same way. They cannot be cut off from the supplies they need to survive. Now, the fact that they're so small is another problem. <laughs> you know, the people can shoot any gun right over the entire country because the, the gun range of most of these guns now are, you know, you know, long range and missiles and everything. But as far as being cut off from supplies, they cannot be cut off by their supplies. And it says, you shall get your treasures out of this. And of Gad, he said, blessed is he that enlarges Gad... He dwells as a lion and tears the arm with the crown of the head. He, and he provided the first part for himself because there is a portion of the lawgiver where he was seated and he came with the heads of the people and executed justice of the Lord and his judgments on Israel. So Gad is kind of like a wild, wild card in here. He's, he's the wild man and he, he lives up in the north. Gad is one of the first nations to be taken when, when battles come along and one of the and is one of the fiercest in battle as well. And he says, you're like the lion. Blessed is he that it enlarges Gad. And then of Dan, he says, and Dan is like the lion's whelp. He shall be, he shall leap from Bashan. Bashan is a land where animals and cattle grow and, and breed into very large uh, cattle. You'll hear in the poetry oftentimes, as the cattle of Bashan, of the lambs of Bashan, it is a place where 
very good land for growing, uh, raising cattle, growing cattle, raising cattle, and some of the best cattle come from that, that area. And Dan is, is, he says, is like that. He says he's going to, he's like the lion whelp, he shall leap from, from Bashan. And Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfy your favor and fully with the blessings of the Lord. Possess you the west and the south. Naphtali was to possess, was to take land. And these are the blessings that, that Moses places on the children of Israel. And we look at this. You know, in our day and age, we don't think too much of the blessings. But in this day, the father would oftentimes bless his children and pronounce blessings on them. And it's amazing when you read the blessings how accurate their blessings are. You go back into Genesis and read Jacob's blessings on his children. Judah will be the ruler. Benjamin will, will be this. Uh, Joseph will, will save his people. And you go down the list of all the things that, they're, that he blesses them with. And you say, wow, he was a prophet. You know, what he said came to be. And here is Moses saying the blessings on He says, of Asher, he said, let Asher be blessed with children and let him be acceptable to his brethren and let him dip his foot in oil and his shoes shall be iron and brass as thy days, so shall your strength be. He says, bless him with people. <laughs> grow him. Grow them, grow him greatly. And Asher is known to have grown and it says, let his feet dip in, let his dip his feet in oil, which is a blessing. You poured oil on somebody's feet for blessing and to, for healing and, and all. And then Moses goes back into this little statement that we're going to end with. There is none like unto the God of Jeshuram who rides upon the heaven in your help and, it is, and in his excellency on the sky. The eternal God is your refuge and beneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before you and shall say, destroy them. And Israel shall dwell in safety alone, and the fountain of Jacob shall be upon the land of corn and wine. Also his heaven shall drop with dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like unto you, O, o people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and who is the sword of your excellency? And your enemies shall be found liars unto you, and, they shall, and you shall tread upon their high places. Now he ends it. He started with a blessing of God, and he's going to end with a blessing of God. He says... There is no God like the God of Jeshurun or Israel and who rides in the heaven and his excellency on the sky. This is a picture, poetic picture, that God rides the heaven. He is above everything, sees everything, is more powerful than everything and rules all. And we see the people of that day worshipped gods of different entities. And there's a couple places in Judges where they talk, of, in Joshua, where they talk, well, their God is the God of the hills. He defeated the gods of the hills, and he defeated the gods of the river, but he can't defeat the gods of the hill. And we're going to trust in our gods. Our gods of the hill can stand up to their God. And he would just show that he was the greatest God every time. He, no gods, none, none of the gods of the people would stand against him. And here Moses is saying, God, you're the God over everything. You rule everything. You are the eternal God the eternal God is our refuge. And we've talked a lot about that. God is our refuge. He wants us to hide in him. And a refuge is a place you go for protection, especially in their day. You would go to the towers. You would go to the fortified cities, and that was your refuge. If you saw an enemy, you went to the nearest place of protection that you could get to, 
the, the bigger the better, but they had towers all through the land so that if you were attacked while you were out in the middle of the field, you could get to a tower maybe before you could get to the city and the tower would be your refuge. It had one small door. You'd put the, the bolts behind that and little tiny skinny windows that nobody could get in. Easy to defend by only one or two people even and you'd be protected in the tower. Ideally, you wanted to make it to the city where there's more people, more food, but it says God is our refuge. When we're under attack, we need to run to God and hide. And God expects that. So the next time somebody tells you that they don't need that crutch of God like you do, say, fine, I love my crutch. What is your crutch? <laughs> and I've used that with people. I go, I'll take my crutch any day of the world rather than yours. What's your crutch? Alcohol, drugs, work, school? <laughs> what, what is your crutch that's not going to stand up when it's time? God is our refuge. And I love this. And underneath are his everlasting arms. If somehow we get knocked out of his refuge or if you refuse to go in, his arms are right underneath us to catch us. That is a beautiful picture. He is holding his arms out saying, okay, you're my children. I'm your refuge, but if you don't want that, I'll catch you when you, when you, get, when, when you fall. Not if you fall, but when you fall, because you're not in the refuge, I will catch you. That is a beautiful picture of the ultimate complete protection of God. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before you, and he shall say, destroy them. This is the picture of them going into the promised land. Victor victory. All the enemies cannot stand against them. The only battle Israel loses in the promised land is the battle of Ai. And that is because of Achan's sin when he took the gold pieces and the clothing out of Jer Jericho. And the people did not ask God what to do. They said, That's a little, the next town on the road is a little town. We can take it. And they sent a small number of people to take Ai and they got their butts beat because God said there's sin in the camp and they had to have Achan be found out. And then Achan and his whole family were destroyed because of his sin and their knowledge of that sin. And he didn't repent from his sin and people died because of his sin. This is the significance of if there's sin amongst Christians in churches, there will be problems. People need to repent. They cannot live in a sinful lifestyle and be naming the name of Christ and think they're going to get away with it. We've said it over and over again. Sin has consequences. Anytime we sin, there are consequences that must be paid for that sin. And God's going to say, you will get the, the consequences. Unless by his grace, he decides not to give us the consequences, and that is not the norm. Yes, there's all kinds of pictures. Picture of Aaron not being killed for creating the golden calf. The you know, picture of several people that don't die because of their sin. But those are the exception to the rules. They're not the rule. And we see that. And then it says, Israel shall dwell in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon the land of corn and wine. And also his heavens shall drop down dew. Israel shall dwell in safety. God protects his people. God protects his children, his children even for Christians. But even today, Israel has a great protective hand of God upon it, even though they are not following him the way they should. He is still protecting them because he said that he would. And it's all by his grace. They don't deserve to be protected, but that other than the fact that God told Abraham that they're his children, that he would bless them, period. And because he made that promise, he's protecting them. He protects them in battles. He protects them in their day-to-day in their -day walking. And he says, 
I will provide safety. I will provide rest. And also dew in the heavens and corn. And this is the amazing thing. Even today, Israel is the breadbasket of Europe. Little town, about a little country about the size of New Jersey feeds the world from their little territory because God blesses them so much. And they do a lot of science and everything to improve their yields, but God is blessing them and, and providing them just as he promised he would. Otherwise, their science would go to waste if it wasn't for God's blessing. So he's still blessing them? He's still blessing them Not because of his promise to Abraham. His promise to Abraham was that he would keep and bless them, and it's not because of anything they're doing. They're blessed only because God said that he would. Which is also why we as Christians are oftentimes blessed, because we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. He lives in us, so God says, I'm going to bless you even though you don't deserve it. Now, we can sometimes do, be closer to deserving it, and sometimes we're living way off in, you know, in right field doing what we want, and God says, you're still my child. I'm going to let you have suffering, but I'm not going to let you totally be destroyed. God leaves a blessing on his children. Why? Because his reputation is at stake on his, when his children are out there. Now, if his children go too far off into sin, he'll take his children home. Many Christians have gone home early in their lifetime because they were bringing such disgrace upon the name of God that God says, okay, you're not going to repent. I'm taking you home. Much the same as he's done with, with Moses. He's, uh, he's told Moses, because of your sin, you will not go into the promised land. And remember, I've said that I believe it's because he never repented of his sin. He always blamed the people. You know, it's your guys' fault that I'm not going, that I got mad at you, and then because I got mad at you, I'm not going into the promised land, but it's all your fault. Plus, he struck that rock. Well, he struck the rock, but, yeah. but I think if he had repented and said, God, I am really sorry that I lost my temper with these people. Can you forgive me? That God probably would have forgiven him. But God knew that he wasn't going to ask for forgiveness and seek forgiveness. And he never does. We never see him asking forgiveness. It's always, you guys did this. All the book of Deuteronomy. All the book of Deuteronomy, which is... Huh? Has he ever asked for forgiveness? Huh? Has he ever asked for forgiveness? Mm, not that it ever says. He's going to die right after this chapter. So his life has come to an end. Uh, and he never seems to have asked for forgiveness. He never, he never stopped blaming the people for, for, his, for his actions. And, you know, this is why we have to be careful. When we sin, we cannot be blaming somebody else. Well, if my mom and dad didn't teach me right and wrong, or I hung with this crowd that, that led me astray, or I did this, I did this, or this happened, or that happened, God's going to say, no, you chose to disobey, and you're going to pay the consequence for your disobedience. We cannot blame others. We cannot shift the blame. And the blame game has been going on since the very beginning. It was from the very beginning when Adam and Eve were talking to God. And we've talked about it, you know. Uh, Adam, what did you do? Well, God, it's your fault because you gave me this woman and you guys, you know, she gave me this food. He, he kind of pointed both ways. God, it's your fault and her fault. I'm, I'm innocent of this whole deal. If you hadn't given her to me, she wouldn't have tricked me. Uh, and Eve, of course, just blames the serpent, and the serpent is judged without even getting to speak. <laughs> and then, then Eve is judged, and then Adam is judged, and as a consequence of Adam being judged, the entire human race is judged, because he was the head of the human race, and because he sinned, God judged the human race. Uh, he was supposed to take care of things. He was supposed to... And it says, you know, verse 29, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like unto you? 
a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help. God is our shield. He's Israel's shield. He protects. The, and who is the sword of your excellency? Your enemies shall be found liars unto you, and, shall tread, and you shall tread upon their high places. Now, we've talked about high places. High places are places where the idols are worshipped, usually on the tops of hills and stuff, but they're, they're called high places. He says, God's going to deliver your enemy to you, and you're going to tread on their, on their, on their holy places, their, their, their high places, their places of worship. You get to tread on them. You get to destroy them. You're going to be greater because God has given them, given you the victory. And during, Joseph, during Joshua's day, they destroy all the high places. And later on in Judges, First and Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, all through the prophets, you're going to find they keep worshiping after the idols in high places and the groves. And we see over and over again how they disobey God. But, you know, these blessings. God wants to bless his people. And he's taking Moses' gifts and saying, I'm going to bless these people. And you know these people did not deserve it. All they've been doing is murmuring, griping, and complaining, telling Moses that everything's not good enough and that they shouldn't have to go where they're going and all these other things. And God says, I still love them. I'm still going to bless them. I'm still going to care for them. So our job is to just keep following God because he wants to bless. He really does. You know, God is good, and all the time God is good, and we need to keep that in mind. God is always good. Even when we don't think he's being good in our life, he's good. If we knew everything that he knows, we would know that he is good. We would know that he has a great plan for us because he would go, we would say, oh, this is how you're going to use this in my life. I understand. Bring it on, God. I'm all excited now because I know how you're going to use it. The only problem is we don't know how he's going to use it. All we need to do is trust. God, you're going to do it. God, you're going to do good. God, you are good. God, you are not just beating us up for the sake of beating us up. You're, you're doing something that is for good. And the more we believe that, the easier it is to go through the hard times. When we lose everything that we have, when we lose a loved one, when, we, when, when everything bad seems to be happiness, if we just look and say, God, you are good and you have a plan, it makes it easier to go through. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your blessings of Israel. And Lord, that you want to bless us. And we just thank you and ask you to help us see that you want to bless us and help us to see that you are good and ready to bless us in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.